come to our attention that a mysterious force is loose somewhere in outer space. Welcome to Talk Tank. Hello, you have reached the Talk Tank, the official LSC Entrepreneurs Podcast, where we delve into the minds of those who think, live, and breathe outside the box. My name is Nicholas Tan, and I will be your host for today. And my name is Jessica G, a member of the Entrepreneur Society, who on behalf of the Talk Tank is excited to welcome Nick from Women in Business for this collaboration. Today's episode is part of our Women of LSE mini-series dedicated to the insights of women alumni who are making waves in their respective fields with their pursuits. I am very excited to introduce our guest, Shireen Abdullah. Most of us at the LSE often aspire to work in banking, consulting, or on the next great idea. Today, we have with us a special guest with experiences in not one, not two, but all three fields. From raising unicorns and corporate innovation, the traditional professions of banking and consulting, to the newest trends in podcast hosting, Shireen Abdullah is an LSE alumni who operates the largest fintech accelerator in the Middle East, DIFC Fintech Hive. We'll be speaking to Shireen today about her remarkable journey, from studying at the LSE in Colombia to her work at Citibank, before forging her own path in the realm of fintech, startups, and podcasting. Trust me, you'll want to take notes. Welcome, Shireen. It's a pleasure and honor to have you on. It's a pleasure to have been invited. Thank you very much for having me. We've introduced you, but we'd love to hear an elevator pitch in your words. (laughs) Who is Shireen? Who is Shireen? Shireen loves working with startups and is passionate about entrepreneurship. Awesome, sure and sweet. Um, <laughs> that was about a one-floor elevator pitch. <laughs> Born in Bahrain, currently living in Dubai, with a podcast about the Middle East, you've done amazing work in the region. Having lived in this region growing up, how was the culture like working in the Middle East? Hmm. So, given that I'm from the Middle East, I don't find the culture and way of doing business here strange. But when I explain it to some people... I see their eyebrows go up, which kind of indicates to me, okay, something in the culture must be strange. And um, one way in which it could be perceived to be strange for some people is the fact that what can be perceived as racism is not really racism, but rather bucketing people into um, stereotypes for the simplicity of being able to work with if that makes sense. So let's say if I'm about to do business with a Arab. Um, I know that Arabs appreciate FaceTime, so my inclination would be to invite them for a cup of coffee and to have, you know, talk over coffee first. Whereas if um, I encounter uh, an American, let's say my perception would be that they're all about efficiency. So I would skip the coffee and go straight to a PowerPoint presentation. So it's, it's, it's very light touch examples. Um, but I think that this is kind of innate in the way that people do business here. I think we'd like to hear, uh, given the fact that we were from LSE, right? Uh, a lot of people are interested in entering the traditional corporate world. And you yourself, uh, from what I know, 
started off your career in a notoriously competitive industry working for Bahrain EDB and Citibank Dubai for over five years. So what motivated the switch from the traditional corporate world to something truly quite different? Honestly, I got tired of feeling like a small fish in a big pond. I think that, um, okay, so you mentioned a couple of firms that are actually radically different. EDB and Citibank are two very, very different firms. The former, EDB, was a, or is a small um, agency owned by the government of Dubai, whereas Citibank, so sorry, I apologize, the government of Bahrain, whereas Citibank is a publicly listed huge bank that is global employs thousands and thousands and thousands of people so my first in with with my first employer edb i actually went there thinking okay i will shine because it's meant to be a prominent employer in bahrain but it was too small for me as a fresh graduate i thought no i want to be in an international uh, establishment where i can learn international best practice and work with global people so I made the switch from small firm to big firm. And then when I moved to a big firm, I stayed there for five years. Um, milked really everything it had to offer me um, just by virtue of it being such a global organization. And then started to feel like a small fish in a big pond. So I was ready to return back into a small organization because I felt like I had developed the toolkits uh, I needed in order to shine in a small firm better than I would have had I just stayed in the small firm throughout my early career. So um, given the fact that you're now uh, walking through your corporate experience, um, now you're at the point of stage where you would like to be part of a small firm again, right? So have you ever tried to pursue bringing your own ideas to life as in starting your own thing and, you know, being the head of your own small firm and what were your initial ventures like if you had any and could you share them with us? Yeah, I mean, honestly, all the time from back when I was a student, I think that for some people, um, entrepreneurial is a part being entrepreneurial is a part of their personality so I found myself drawn to entrepreneurial endeavors without even putting the label entrepreneurship on it so an example I can give from when I was at LSE is I joined a competition that back then and when I say back then I'm talking 07 08 was sponsored by Ernst & Young and um, it was a entrepreneurship driven program in the sense that to get on the program you needed to apply with a team with a business idea they and they chose the teams that they thought had the best business ideas and then they granted you some seed capital plus mentorship from uh, an exec at EY to help you do your venture and you could run your venture over the course of a few months and uh, the winners de were determined by the ventures that ended up making the most profit now all the profits ended up going to charity it was all in support of the princess trust uh but I think that that was one of the most memorable experiences I had at LSE without even realizing that it was an entrepreneurial venture. Um, though I think that I didn't have the risk appetite nor the know-how to be an entrepreneur from the get-go. I think kind of being at LSE where entrepreneurs are not the main let's say, professional output of its students. Um, I was still influenced by my banker friends to go into banking. 
but oh my god throughout my career I've always wanted to leave to go do an entrepreneurial venture and that started from as early as when I was in EDB which was my first employer now throughout the years my let's say business ideas grew more and more mature like the first venture I wanted to build was a milkshake company and I actually got the idea from London. I don't remember the name of the shop anymore, but I remember going in and they had jars of all kinds of confectionery. And you could just pick a confectionery and they'd blend it into a milkshake for you. And I love bounties. I used to have bounty milkshakes all the time. So I thought, you know what? I'm going to bring this to Bahrain. Um, that never ended up materializing, though I would go pretty far. So I would you know, with that particular venture, for example, went so much as to find the retail shop, get an interior designer to render the, you know, images of the decor. Through to, let's say, five years down the line, there was a venture that I really, really believed in, in that I actually sunk capital. I registered the business, um, proceeded with some of the operations and so on. Um, though none of my ventures have have yet to give me a reason to leave the corporate world. So I, I continue to be full employed full time, at least, you know, uh, you know, um, as of the recording date of this episode. Uh, hopefully one day I'll be able to make something big enough that that becomes then my full time income stream. Awesome. And we definitely look forward to seeing uh, what your future ventures would be. Uh, I hope so. <laughs> definitely. Do do let us know and, and we'll definitely keep our listeners posted. Um, so to the listeners at home, um, some of which may have their next big idea that they would like to launch, right? Uh, and they might be considering their options. So given the fact that you work uh, as at an accelerator at DIFC Fintech Hive, for example, uh, could you tell us the, uh, could you walk us through, in fact, the world of startups so what's the difference between an incubator, venture builder, and accelerator? And what do you think is the favorite part of the process uh, getting involved as an uh, advisory role uh, for these uh, young companies? Okay, so I'm going to split my answers into two buckets so that I can address your questions fully. The first bucket being what are the different platforms an entrepreneur can join in order to get help? Now, um, there is a difference between an incubator, an accelerator, and a venture builder. Uh, let's start with an incubator. An incubator is basically a home for startups to um, kickstart out of, a launch pad. Um, sometimes incubators will take some equity in exchange for giving you a space to work out of and a community to learn from. But the word incubator almost always refers to idea stage companies. Now, in, you, you can be incubated for from anywhere from a couple of weeks to six months, I would say is the longest I've seen an incubator meaningfully run for. Um, but the idea is that you do not stay incubated forever. It's a temporary period of time until you test your product, um, you know, build an MVP, um, see if you have product market fit, things like that. Now, a level more advanced than an incubator would be an accelerator. Uh, those programs tend to be shorter in duration. Uh, the max those would go for is, let's say, three months. And they tend to be for startups who are beyond idea stage. So let's say you've built an MVP and what you're seeking is more 
market access from the community they give you as opposed to ideation. But in both cases, incubator and accelerator, the entrepreneur is there driving his or her business, sometimes with co-founders. Um, venture builders are, on the other hand, uh, operate a little bit differently. It's kind of like the if an entrepreneur and a VC were to go into business together. Sometimes the VC have entre- the VCs may have entrepreneurs in residence. Um, and sometimes the entrepreneurs may be investing their own money. Either way, I call it more of an idea factory type of an entity where um, embracing failure is um, key and the venture builder often works on more than one idea at a time. So where with an incubator and an accelerator, you, you know, make one idea a reality, a venture builder often takes past entrepreneurship experience in order to build future projects and in doing so with trial and error several ideas until they narrow down a few winning ones and then the venture builders tend to run for let's say minimum a year so the commitment would need to be more because they're taking the idea from ideation through to mvp development through to product market fit and even you know through the initial launch before they raise funding and then let's say spin it off as an individual business. Hmm, I, I see. So it's sort of like uh, incubators and accelerators really uh, almost solely encompass the ideas of the original founder in a certain way, but a venture builder is more inclined um, through the goals of a larger corporation, in this case, a venture, a venture fund, I'd assume. Yeah, yes, yes. Now, sometimes the venture builder will own their own fund. Sometimes they will bring in different investors depending on the project. So the funding model varies, but the key here is that a venture builder works on several ideas at once, usually with entrepreneurs and residents that are interchangeable between the ideas versus a founder wanting to launch his or her business. Awesome. And I think... And, you know, being committed to that. Hmm. I think that's definitely really useful, especially for people who think that they have the next big idea that's going to change the world, right? And they want to uh, figure out how they're going to get it out there. So that's definitely um, one way, which is why we mentioned at the beginning to take notes if you haven't been already. (laughs) By the way, just for anyone listening who is an aspiring entrepreneur, definitely apply for an incubator or an accelerator. I recommend everyone to, because you can't... I take that back. You can do it alone, but you can fast track the process by getting into one of these programs. Absolutely. Definitely. Now, of course, what you give in exchange needs to be fair. I know that some programs take just too much equity for what they're willing to give, but you know, and I'd like to think it's not just because I work for an accelerator by day that I believe in the model, but I really, really see entrepreneurs grow by joining our platform. Therefore, I, I'm a big advocate. If we look at innovations that came out of the 08 crisis, a lot of people said that most of our modern revolutionary ideas came from a time of real uncertainty, right? And that this global pandemic is likely no different. Are there any new pursuits or ideas which are on your to-do list uh, that you're excited to see developed upon? So, you know, people actually ask me this question all the time. 
innovation happens in booms and busts. Um, I think that in a time of busts like COVID, there was a lot of um, people were highlighting successful companies that came out of previous busts. And it's not like they were the only successful companies the world have ever seen. The world has seen many successful companies come out of booms as well as busts. But I think that, you know, highlighting that um, innovation can flourish even in downtimes is just a way to get people to feel more optimistic about the current state of the world. So I'm not excited about any particular, you know, COVID-led or COVID-driven technology because I do think that, you know, eventually the world will maybe not go back to normal, but go back to a status quo. And um, let's say niche businesses that were required in during a temporary period of time may not be required as a business model going forward. So I'd actually say be cautious of what you call a trending business during this time. It may not continue to be trending for much longer. Do you think that, broadly speaking, you'll see a lot of the uh, trends of people, not companies, but people, uh, revert back to normal after we get the pandemic under control globally? So I don't believe in the word normal anymore. Um, I, you know, I actually really believe in the word new normal instead um, because you have to deal with the cards that are given to you. But yeah, I mean, I like hugging people, for example. I like shaking hands of people in a business meeting. I want these things <laughs> to come back. <laughs> I love traveling and I love people to be enthusiastic about getting on a plane. I, I, I hope this comes back. Um, you know, like I quite like the way life was from a human community point of view. Um, so yeah, absolutely. I do hope. Awesome. That makes uh, the two of us, at least I'm pretty sure most of our, our listeners also have uh, similar (laughs) opinions, uh, given the fact that, you know, uh, LSE culture is closely tied with, um, pop Fridays, for example. So I think everyone's, everyone's looking forward to, um, a return to, a new normalcy uh, in this case. But uh, in the meantime, I guess the most, the easiest way we communicate is through digital means. And we're always looking for different perspectives. And given how meta it sounds, we are very interested to hear about Sparkle Shireen, the the podcast that you host, um, and also your opinions on other podcasts as well. During COVID, my my personal consumption of podcasts went up astronomically because I kept wanting to entertain myself somehow as I walked around the one block that that I had access to to make sure that I hit my 10,000 steps that Fitbit was making me feeling guilty for not hitting. Um, (laughs) Mind you, though, I had been consuming podcasts for like seven plus years, uh, but I saw my intake go up. So as my intake went up, I was like, you know what? There's some pretty great content out there. made by some really fantastic conversation lists. But there was very little content that covered the Middle East. So I thought, why not be a voice of the Middle East? And that's kind of how I embarked into wanting to do a podcast. And the area that I chose was innovation and particularly tech innovation. And that's because, you know, as my elevator pitch alluded to, I'm very passionate about <laughs> entrepreneurship. So I thought, okay, let, let me combine Voices of the Middle East with this passion area of mine. So um, 
you know, I, I, I learned everything from how to record and distribute a podcast, how to edit it. Um, in terms of, you know, interviewing, I'd like to think I'm a good conversationalist, so I didn't practice too I much there. I think you are, but, definitely. <laughs> thank you. Um, but, you know, I, I also kind of took it a took the podcast as an opportunity to build my network. So though I, you know, interviewed my friends the first few episodes, then I started reaching out to people outside my network. And it's amazing how willing people are to lend their time for being a voice of the Middle East. So that's kind of how I, how, uh, how Spark with Shireen came about. And it's available to listen to literally everywhere from the website to Apple Podcasts and Spotify. But going back to what I listen to and what I consume, up until uh, very recently, one of I, I actually only consume podcasts about health and fitness, and more specifically, actually health podcasts. That's because when it comes to fitness, it's very hard to follow someone explaining how to do a pull-up without any visual cues. So instead, I would listen to people talk about what you should and should not be eating. I found that those types of conversations to not need a visual cue. But more recently, I've actually started listening to some news-based podcasts, particularly market news and whatnot. And that's because I'm also um, delving into another venture where I'm working with the fintech startups on being a podcast host and producer, and they cover the topic of markets. So I thought to myself, "Mm, okay, I need to expand my horizon and get to know what other podcasts are there that produce content in this field so that we can one up them or, you know, at least meet them. And I'm, I'm competitive if you can tell. (laughs) (laughs) So So. (laughs) nothing wrong with that in the right situation, I would say. Fair enough. I've taken a deep dive. Uh, on your podcast topics, and it covers an incredible range. So you have 3D printing, gaming, Bitcoin, and farming in the desert, just to name a few. So this, these are all, I would say, very, very distinct industries and distinct fields. So how do you keep up with all of these new niche ideas from so many industries? Ooh, okay. So I keep up with what's going on in the world in general through newsletters. I really, really, really believe in newsletters. I don't watch TV, therefore I don't consume uh, broadcast TV, which is where uh, I would say actually the older, like my dad always has the news on in the background and he thinks he can keep up with the news if it's not running in the background. Um, But then I'm also not so Gen Y and Gen Z where I get my news from Instagram. Like I know some people um, consume things on Instagram. And by the way, side note, just to explain some cultural differences going back to what we were discussing earlier in the show, the government of Dubai acknowledges that locals consume most of their news via Instagram, that they actually publish news through Instagram. So all throughout COVID, the way we were getting updates on, um, you know, what are the new restrictions and whatnot was through Instagram. Anyway, I thought maybe that could be a side a fun side fact for your listeners. But going back to how I consume the news, newsletters, absolutely. Because um, I identify whose tone of voice I like. I subscribe to receive updates from them. And then I consume the updates whenever I have the time. 
without feeling pressure that, you know, if I don't log on, um, I'm going to miss the news as it, you know, gets buried in my feed or anything like that. And I used to have this ritual where on the weekends I would take myself out to a cafe, get a cup of coffee and just sit and spend a couple of hours reading newsletters. Um, and I can mention some newsletters that I really love, Morning Brew being one of them, uh, The Hustle being another, um, and that's how I keep up. And there are, of course, some local newsletters that I subscribe to to keep on top of uh, like regional Middle Eastern updates. But tying this back up to curating topics for my podcast, if I come across a piece of news that I think is interesting, I make a note. And then I try to find a guest who may be a good person to interview regarding the topic for my show. Um, because it's important to me that what we discuss on Spark is relevant content instead of dated content, if that makes sense. And sometimes what I'll do, by the way, is I'll like, you know, have a, a, a library of some recordings that are just there as a repository. But then if something new pops up in the market, I'll record my intro segment covering the latest news and then slot in that interview towards the second half of the episode. I did that last week, for example, because it was just so much fintech news coming out of Saudi Arabia that I thought, you know what, this recording, this, this interview that I had recorded way back in September, about how to do business with people from that country from a cultural understanding point of view would, you know, combine with my intro segment, make for a good episode. So these are my, you know, inner workings and strategies. Hope I haven't shared too much. <laughs> <laughs> I think um, even if we did uh, realize the secret sauce, which goes behind the podcast, I don't think it's, it's that easy to recreate, definitely. And I think it's really a... It's really a very pure pursuit. I, I have no idea how else to better describe this, but sort of a curiosity which drives you to find out more. And then once you find out more and you find it interesting, you want to help other people who, who listen to your podcast learn more about something new. And I feel that that's really, uh, in my opinion, the ideal uh, why for a podcast, right? To, oh, for to sure. Make, yeah. Yeah. I mean, sometimes even at work, I'll have an interesting conversation with a founder about his or her technology. And I find myself always thinking, shoot, I wish I recorded that, and just published it, obviously with their consent. But, you know, people have interesting conversations or I'd like to think pe people are exposed to interesting conversations. And if you are able to capture it and share it, why not? Um, there are a couple of things that the team and I uh, were really curious and, and we'd love to gain your insight on this. The first one being failure. And it's a big topic in entrepreneurship, right? So lots of books talk about it. For example, how to fail, why great businesses fail. As a startup expert, is failure really an inevitable part of business? And if so, how do you think we should deal with it? Oof, I don't like the word failing. I prefer to see it as it didn't work out. For now, um, everything is a learning, whether it's a failure or otherwise, you know, whether something worked out or didn't work out, you would need to acknowledge it, I think, gracefully and move on for like, you know, kind of accept it and move on for it to not have um, what I think other people 
would allow, which is this like negative lingering feeling from having failed. It's okay to fail, embrace it. And if you're an entrepreneur, you best be okay with failing. And failure, by the way, again, kind of going back to success. Failure does not mean I shut down my business. Sometimes you can fail in one version of a product, relaunch it with different features, close one product, pivot all together. You know, like, like these little things can also be seen as a failure. Let's say if you were the project manager for, there was a project that Google recently, no, Alphabet had this project called, I think, Loom or Loon, which were balloon-based satellites, something like that. Anyway, they abandoned the project. It was like a moonshot project. And, you know, if, if I was a product owner, I would maybe feel failure. Does that mean that Alphabet as a whole is a failure? No, not by any stretch of the imagination. So, um, you know, it comes in many ways, shapes and, shapes and forms. Just you got to accept it and move on gracefully, you know, and maybe as well know that it's not the only failure you may ever encounter. I think in this case, given the fact that failure is often a big topic uh, in society, that's definitely one of um, many things that I think society could improve on. But putting um, putting the spotlight back on you, um, if you could change one thing about society, what would it be? People should hug more. <laughs> so like more physical contact and, and showing. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't know if you, if you know what the five love languages are. Uh, just... For anyone listening who's curious, Google it. <laughs> but my love language is touch. And I believe that, you know, if I if I say hello and I hug you, you automatically like me more. Auto- I mean, even if you're someone who doesn't like hugs, you'll think that I'm a warm person and you will open up to me a little bit more. Um, so I think that kind of, and it doesn't need to be a hug. Like I'm, I'm, I'm saying the word hug is like um, an example of something you can do to show you're human. But I guess show people that you are human um, and that you have emotions, even if some people try to hide the fact that they have emotions, which is common in business. Hmm. I guess that's definitely one thing. Um, yeah, I think we can we can all take away from that because oftentimes, especially in the modern world, right, we often interface with people behind screens mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. It, it kind of loses that human connection in a sense. So I, I think that would that would really... Uh, really be helpful so um, I have one interesting question right here which is what's an unconventional truth you believe helped you achieve your success I'll tell you but if you don't like it you can cut it out <laughs> yeah sure go ahead because I, I, I think there's a good so chance to stay in I but think please fire away where some people who are feminists believe that um, being female works against women in the workplace. I actually believe that it can work for you if you know how to play on um, your femininity. And by the way, this is big talk coming from someone who's actually quite a tomboy, but um, I don't use, I've never actually um, allowed discrimination because I'm female. And instead, what I've done, and maybe, um, let's say, unintuitively, is use it as a bargaining power. Not a bargaining power, but like as like a power tool, as like something in my toolkit. And I'll give you an example of something I do that all my guy friends and guy colleagues call me out on. So they have this nickname for me that's boss. So they say, Shireen can get anyone to do anything. And... 
the way I do it is I just command an order and then I follow it up with a giggle and I feel like I can do that because I'm a girl but you'd be surprised it gets the work done you know and people aren't really gonna say anything we'll just do it I don't know I think that that's hopefully that's not something super controversial what I just said um but it's you know fact of the matter in my life at least we've just got one more question left in the top tank which is this if you could invite anyone in the world you want for a podcast interview, real or fictional, who would you invite? I would invite a person who is my favorite podcaster, which is a man named Peter Etia. He is just the most eloquently spoken person, I think. And I would just want to have a conversation with the person that I think speaks the best in the world, let's say. Awesome. So um, we will try for our social media team to take note and maybe we might tag him in the post. We don't know yet. Uh, we, we haven't discussed it yet, but <laughs> let's, here's hoping. I'm cheering for you. Um, I'm cheering you on. Hopefully uh, you get such an opportunity. Yay. So do keep us posted on how that goes as well. One day I'll message him. One day I'll message him and I'll say, hey, please come be a guest. He's actually Middle Eastern ethnically, so maybe I'll play that card. Thank you for your time. Thank you for being on the show. Thank you for inviting me. I've had a wonderful conversation. A big thank you to Shireen Abdullah and Nicholas Tan for joining us on this episode of The Talk Tank. See you next week and leave your message after the beep. <laughs>